Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now this next section of the Sermon on the Mount seems a little random, especially if you remember where we were last week. Remember last week we dealt with don't judge, lest you be judged, and how we're not to be judgmental, but that there are times that we're to make proper right judgments, and we dealt with all that. It just seems a little bit out of place that he would go from saying, don't judge, and don't cast your pearls before swine, to ask, seek, knock. But I, as I wrestled over that, I started to realize that God showed me in the context here that there is a connection, and I can't wait to show it to you. But in order to get that, we need to look at Luke's account of what Jesus is saying here. Go to Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 13. Now it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer him from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, I think that Luke's account is a slightly different time period than Matthew's account. Because if you look at the context of what's going on, Matthew's account of this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. As you know, Jesus was up there on the mountain, had his disciples come to him, and then a bunch of people kept coming. And he started off with, blessed are these and blessed are those. And he preached his Sermon on the Mount. In the midst of that sermon, he talked about prayer and the Lord's Prayer and then so on and things we've been studying. And then later on, he gets to where we are now. In Luke's account... We see that he's praying somewhere and his disciples ask him to teach them to pray. He gives a little quick rendition, if you will, almost like a reminder of what he had said in the Sermon on the Mount on what we call the Lord's Prayer. Then he tells a story about this friend that comes at midnight. And we've already broken that down in times past as we dealt with prayer. But I just want to remind you that also there's a difference in Jesus' answer in the end. In Luke, he says he'll give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. But in Matthew's account, he says he'll give good things to those who ask him. I think they're not identical accounts. I don't think Luke's recording the exact same situation that Matthew is. But there's a lot of similarities between the two. And as you're going to see later tonight, and I'm actually going to be showing you and testing you on this, Jesus does repeat himself. There are certain things he does say over and over, and we're going to deal with that in a little bit. But the biggest thing, go ahead, Dave. Can I ask just a quick question? Mm -hmm. Correct. So he's still continuing to talk to the Jews throughout all of Matthew the still is, yes. So why wouldn't it be that Luke, he was basically talking to both, Judea and Gentile? And that's a possibility, but you've got to keep in mind the context of where it's happening, they're different. And what Jesus says is slightly different. Do you understand? So as you look at the context being different, it's obvious Luke's account's not in the middle of the sermon. It's in a separate time when the disciples come to him by themselves. We also see that what Jesus says at the end of Ask, Seek, and Knock, he says the Holy Spirit in Luke, but he says good things in Matthew. They're not exactly the same, but there's similarities. But the I, reason I brought Luke in was what, what they're wanting you to understand, what Jesus is wanting you to understand is you need to understand the heart of the Father, you need to understand the heart of the Father. We're going to come back to this passage at the end of our study, ask, seek, and knock, and we're going to deal with that. But, so I'm going to ask you this question. How does this teaching on God's willing heart to give and to meet the needs tie into the context of what we studied last week and not being judgmental, but learning how to make proper and spiritual judgments? So again, like I told you, remember, remember when we did a prayer? I taught on that passage in Luke, how he told the story about the friend coming at midnight, and he comes because of his boldness or shamelessness. I love the word impudence. He saw God, he saw that person that he went to as someone that was not only able but willing. We dealt with that. And the story of ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, is God's way of saying to them, you need to know the heart of the Father. He's for you. You don't have to go through all those machinations to try to get him to respond. He's a generous Father. We're going to show, I'm going to show you a lot of that tonight. But my question for you is this, and I want you to wrestle with this, so I'm not afraid to take a little time waiting for your answers. How does this teaching on God's willing heart to give and to meet needs tie into the context of what we studied last week on not being judgmental, but learning to make proper and spiritual judgments. Does anybody see how the two go together? Go ahead. Because of love. Very good, but how? Because if we're not being gentle and loving like Jesus tells us to love others, then we will give and... You're close, but you've got it backwards but you're close. Anybody else? Go ahead. Seems like Luke uses that parable to show the hearts of those involved that God would say, put aside whatever you think. There's a man with nothing wanting to give something away and get out of bed to do so. And another man saying, I don't need to judge you, I just need to help serve as you were serving. Very good. Close. I think that's even closer. Go ahead. You really have a heart after God It's okay, but and, and you were close when you started. But I, let's take it. Let's start with what Glenn said, and I'm going to help you get started. If you really understand God's heart for you, will you be judge people, judging people around you? No. Well, you take a look at the prodigal son, right? Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Here's. He wanted to go ahead and give them both. Right. And here's the thing. Part of the reason why we judge is we like to point out what other people are doing that we think is not as good. So in the hopes that we'll feel a little better about ourselves. In essence, we're trying to earn favor with God. It's like that Pharisee we looked at last week. I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. In other words, God, don't you notice I should get some points for you and I'm going to make myself feel better and feel like I'm earning points with you as I put this other guy down. Uh, those of you that had more than one kid, you know what I'm talking about. They always, doesn't matter how much you've proved to them you love them or try to prove to them you love them, they're always feeling like they have to wrestle with each other for your, for your acceptance. I had two girls and, and if I would say to one, man, that's a beautiful dress, the other one would always go, but what about mine? And, and I wasn't saying when I said I love your dress that I don't like your dress, but they always they felt like they had to wrestle for our approval and our attendance, our, sorry, and acceptance. And so here's the deal. If you really understand the heart of God for you, if you really understand how much he loves you, you won't be judging other people. And as you're going to see in a little bit, you're also going to want them to know the love that God has. But the reason why most Christians are very judgmental is they are still thinking they have to earn God's approval. Let me show you what I want you to see from the scripture in the context. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 25 through 33. Look closely at what Jesus says. He says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. This is the key part right here. Are you not of more value than they? What's Jesus trying to communicate? He's trying to get us to see we're of more value than the animals. God cares about the animals, but you're of more value than them. Keep reading. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that don't know God, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's saying, look, why are you worried about all this stuff? Don't you realize you're of more value than the animals and the grass? And they're taken care of. And then he goes on and he says, stop trying to make yourself look better in my eyes or trying to earn points with me by putting other people down. We ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. But you remember, the Jews had been taught by their Pharisees that God was only pleased with who? The, what? The righteous who were righteous because of how hard they worked, how much better they were than everybody else. And they had been taught to jockey for position, to get the most important seat in the synagogue, to, to be considered more righteous than somebody else. And the Jews were all jockeying for position for God's approval. He's been saying to them in the context here, look, you're of tremendous value. Your father knows what you need. He cares about you. I don't know how else I can communicate this to you. God says, look at the birds, look at the grass. You're of more value. Stop trying to judge other people to make yourself feel better and feel like you're earning points with me. Come to me. 
Ask, seek, knock. So it's almost like uh, we don't want people to come to church, almost like the Jews. I mean, when Christ visited the prostitutes and the tax collector, they were looking at him and saying, well, look, look, he goes and visits. Exactly. Because they already had built the wall, right? Yeah, they, they, had already, they had already decided these people were so bad, God would never love them. Yet, what did Jesus do? He went and hung out with them because he loved everybody. But he's going to go to the ones who at least receive his love. The Pharisees didn't think they needed it. That's the older brother. Go to 1 John chapter 4. It can't be any more clear than it is here in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. It said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected or made complete with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we really understand the love of God for us, it will splash over onto how we treat the people around us. And it says, as he is, so are we in the world. How was he in the world? He was loving toward sinners. Let me just show you something. I do a radio program, some of you know, and I've been doing it for 17 years. And because of a lot of travel that's coming up, I've been working on getting my radio programs ahead of schedule. And I was actually recording some programs already into the end of May uh, this week. And as I was recording them, I'm going through the book of Luke right now in my radio programs. And we're in this section of Luke chapter 9 where two interesting little episodes happen. And they're only recorded in Luke. One was when Jesus was with his disciples and his disciples come and they said, we saw some other guys casting out demons in your name, but they weren't following us. So we told them to stop. And Jesus says to him, anybody that's not against you is for you. In other words, he was dealing with the fact that here were some Christians who were judging other Christians because they didn't do it the way they thought they ought to do it. And boy, isn't that rampant in the church today? Well, we spend all our time judging how we think they ought to do it, whether they sing what they should sing or wear what they, we think they should wear or preach the way we think they should preach or do church the way they think it ought to be done. And Jesus pretty much said to them, look, if they're not against you, they're for you. Leave them alone. They don't have to be just like you. And then the very next passage, 
Jesus and his disciples are walking to Jerusalem, and he had his mind set to go to Jerusalem, and they're going through a Samaritan village, but because Jesus had his mind going to Jerusalem, the Samaritans wouldn't let him pass through. And James and John says, do you want us to call fire down on him? And Jesus says, leave him alone. Leave him alone. He just went a different way. But again, here was their judgmental attitude toward their brothers and a judgmental attitude toward the lost. You ready for this? You know what happens right after that passage? Jesus realizes they're arguing with each other around who's going to be the greatest. They're jockeying for position. And who, who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit on your left? Do you like my dress better than you like my sister's dress? Do you understand what I'm saying? And folks, I don't think it's an accident that here in Matthew, Jesus goes from saying you're of more value. Don't spend your time judging each other and trying to earn my approval by pointing out everybody else's sins. Why don't you just come to me? I have a heart for you. Ask me. Seek. Knock. Go to Psalm 16. Let me show you one more passage. In Psalm 16, verses 1 through 11. Listen closely to how David words this psalm. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, the sorrows of those who run after another god, false gods, shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In other words, David says, I'm not going to worship false gods. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now this is an awesome passage in the fact that if you know the sermon by Peter at Pentecost, here in Acts chapter 3, 2 and 3 there, he's preaching from this passage. And he actually points out that David was not referring to himself, but to Jesus when he said, he won't let your Holy One see corruption. He actually says, hey, David, we know died and was buried and his body rotted. But Jesus died and was buried, but then he rose from the dead and his body never decayed. And that's who he was referring to here. But David's still writing about his heart. And he keeps saying over and over, God, you're my portion. You're my supply. You are so good to me. I don't need anything else. And actually, if you read a lot of David's Psalms, if you were to keep going, you'll realize he talks about how all these people are against him. But it's okay. God, you're everything I need. By the way, it reminded me when I was looking at that one time at Genesis chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. But God has already promised Abram that he's going to be a mighty nation. Of course, he hasn't had this baby yet. He's tried with Sarah and nothing's happening. And in chapter 15, God comes up to Abram and he says to him, I am your shield, your very great reward. Here I am. I'm your protection. I'm everything you need. And you know what Abraham says to him in response? Yeah, but where's this son you promised me? Looks like Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. Of course, God has to remind him and say, no, child from your own body. And, but David, I'm sorry, Abram didn't fully understand. 
the heart of God for him at that time. And even though God says, here I am, I'm enough. His response was, yeah, but. And I got to be honest with you, folks. If we're all honest, as much as we want to know the heart of God for us, I think we all struggle with it over and over and over and question it, don't we? Because when the next thing happens, we start to question a little bit whether or not he's really for us. And when that happens, we start getting into a little bit of a negative attitude sometimes. And we find it easy to start pointing out all the other people around us problems. And, well, that guy doesn't know how to park a car. And, and those people are just bad-mouthing all those folks. And all those people on the TV, I wouldn't do what they do. And, and all of a sudden, what we don't realize we're doing is, is we're trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves in hopes that God maybe will like us a little bit more. Jesus in the context here is saying you need to understand the heart of God for you. And on top of that, when we truly know this love that God has for us, we will also know that he loves others too, just as much. And we'll want them to know his love. And we won't judge them. We'll share God's love with them. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Does anybody remember the last verse from our passage for tonight, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12? I'll get you started. So whatever you would have others do to you, do unto them. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, listen to verses 14 and following. It says, for the love of Christ, what? How's your translation say? What's the next word? Controls us. Some say compels us. I like that one. The love of Christ compels us, controls us. The love of Christ controls us and makes us want to share the good news. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, don't miss this, the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, don't stop reading, because when Paul wrote it, there was not a big number six there. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Folks, do you see what Paul's saying? He says the love of Christ compels us. We don't look at anybody anymore according to the flesh. We used to see Jesus that way, but we don't anymore. And if you're not sure what that means, what it simply means is this. We used to think Jesus was just a human. We don't think that anymore. In the same way, we don't see everybody else now as human. We see them as spiritual beings, either in Christ, and if they're in Christ, they're a new creation. 
And that one who began the good work is going to finish it. So if my brother or my sister, if I see some things in you that maybe I don't think are right, I first off remember Romans 14 says that I'm not to judge my brother because the one who lives within them is going to finish what he started. Who am I to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and God's going to do his work in your life. And I need to pray that God would get you to see these things. If one day down the road he has me to come alongside, as we looked at last week, to build you up, and share with you some things, and I'll do that. But until then, I'm just going to pray that the Jesus is in you is going to do his work. By the way, that'll help a lot of marriages. If wives will stop thinking it's their job to get their husband fixed, and husbands stop thinking it's their job to get their wives fixed. If your spouse is a believer, ask the Lord to do his work in their heart. But on top of that, now the lost, we don't see as these low-down, no-good, horrible sinners. We see them in the same way that God saw us when we were sinners. He died for them. Go to Romans chapter 5. Let me show you what I mean. It's one of our favorite passages of Scripture, but I don't know how many of us have allowed the truth of it to really sink in. In Romans chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we look forward to heaven. But not only that, we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces entrance, sorry, endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. Now, don't, I'm going to keep reading, but let, make sure you're sticking with me here. He says, Those of us who are in Christ, We're at peace with God. We've been justified, and we're at peace with God because of Jesus. And because of that, we rejoice in the fact that we know we're going to heaven. But also on top of that, we can rejoice when when suffering happens because we never for a second will think that God's mad at us or punishing us. He's going to be using it for his purposes, and it's going to produce character and endurance and hope, and that will never disappoint us. Why? Because he's poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us, and we know that he loves us. How many times have you heard Christians over the years when something happens bad, you lose a loved one or whatever, and you say things like, well, where's God? Why has he left me here? And you question his love for you. Uh, Jesus is saying to us, you need to spend some time asking, seeking, and knocking. If you ask, you will receive. You seek. You will find. If you knock, the door will be open. You don't understand the heart of the Father. Well, God, if you really love me, why would you have this happen? Well, you got to trust me. you got to understand my heart first before I can even explain to you my ways. You'll never understand my ways until you know my heart. But he said he's given you his Holy Spirit to confirm. Remember isn't that what it says in 1 John? He's confirmed it by giving us the Holy Spirit, and we've come to believe and to know the love that the Father has for us. And because of that, we have a love for those around us. Now keep reading. Remember how God loved you? Jesus, John chapter 3, verse 16 says what? For God so loved who? Then he sent his only son to die for the world. Listen closely. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. 
Now, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. My prayer is that tonight the spirit of God and the truth of God's word will allow it to be sink into your hearts, folks. I think we really need to spend more time letting the truth of God's love for us take root. But don't don't beat yourself up. As I touched on in my prayer at the beginning, I don't think we'll fully understand it this life. And honestly, I don't think we'll fully understand it when we get there. You don't know why? Because if we fully understand it, we'll be like God. And he'll always be greater. For eternity. I think we'll be able to understand it a whole lot more. I think there'll be a lot of stuff that'll make sense. And the scripture teaches that way. And and how those are things going to be revealed to us. And we're going to be known as we're known. And that kind of thing. I think we're going to be really excited to see some of the stuff that makes total sense. When we don't have this flesh fighting us and the world fighting us and all this stuff. But I don't believe you're ever going to fully understand the love of God for you. I think that's going to be a joy that we're going to be experiencing more and more and more. For eternity. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't want you to answer the question quickly. Do you truly grasp the heart of, God's to- the heart of God towards you? Do you truly grasp the heart, of God's to- the heart of God towards you? Now, the honest answer should be what? No. But doesn't he want you to understand a little bit more each day? Then ask him. So what I want to do is I'm going to show you some scriptures that just show us from the word who God is. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse 6. I want to spend some time, write these down. I want you to spend some time this week meditating on these verses, allowing the truth of them to kind of sink in more than just knowing what it says. Hebrews 11:6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, don't miss this first part. Without what, it's impossible to please God. All right, well, how do you get faith? Oh, yes, but even more, the scripture tells us how we get faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through The word of Christ, actually. You ready for this? And I want you to see what I'm saying. When the Bible says, ask, seek, and knock, there's nothing wrong with praying. But he's going to send you here. When it says seek, there's nothing wrong with asking, but he's going to send you here. When the Bible tells us to knock, this is where it'll be opened. I have become convicted more and more. The more time I spend in the word, the more I study it, the more that God has me spend in it, the more I've come to realize God, when we stand before him, is not going to be saying, look what I did for you here, look what I did for you there. He's going to be taking us back to the word every single time. And you know why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did while he was on the earth. And that's what the father did every time that he spoke. You know, when in... in, um, in the Luke, Luke's account of the transfiguration, 
where Jesus is on that mountain and his glory comes through and Peter, James, and John are there. And then the Father's voice, remember the cloud envelops them and the Father says, this is my chosen one with whom I delight. Listen to him. If you were to go back and look at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 and following, you will find that God the Father didn't just boom his voice and said, that's my boy. He was actually quoting his own word. He was pointing out that this was the one. This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the one the prophecies were talking about. But he did it by just quoting his own word. When Jesus came into the temple and started cleaning out the money changers, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, we know that he was quoting because he said it's written, and he was. He was quoting from Isaiah. But then he says this, but you've made it a den of robbers. I, for years, thought he quoted the first part and then threw in that little bit. Do you realize when he said you've made it a den of robbers, he was quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7, where it literally says they were going to make his, place, his uh, temple a den of robbers? Every time he spoke... He was speaking the word. In Luke chapter 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man dies and goes to Hades and Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom. And as you know, the rich man says to him, hey, send him to warn my brothers. And the answer is, they have Moses and the prophets. He goes, oh, I know, but if someone would come back from the dead, they'd believe. And he says to him, if they won't believe the word, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. When Jesus rose from the dead, those two men on the road to Emmaus had heard what Jesus had said. They were with him when he had told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. Three days later, I'll rise. He said it three or four times in a row. The angels told the women, remember what he told you. Again, do you see it? The two men still here. The women come back, say they saw angels. He wasn't there. The two other guys, Peter and John, run and check the tomb and they find it empty. They come back and report. And those two guys still decide we're going back. Jesus shows up. What does Jesus do the whole conversation that they're walking? Speaks the word. Spoke the word. And my, that's my favorite verses because it says... From all of the scriptures about himself. And then there's, there's a verse that says... And our hearts were burning within us. Yes, our hearts were burning within us while he shared with us. All Jesus did. He could have gone, dude, look at my hand. Dude. No. What did he do? He took him back to the word. When they ran to the upper room that night and Jesus appeared, walked into the locked doors, he says, remember what I told you. Everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Folks, let me just tell you, ask, seek, and knock is not saying, God, do a miracle for me so I'll know you love me. He said, well, isn't it worded this way in Micah chapter 6, verse 8? He's already shown you, oh man, what he requires. Oh, it's already here. It's all there. Spend time here, folks, and believe what it says. And when you spend time here and believe what it says, and you ask and you seek and you knock, it'll move from here to here. And when it moves to here, it'll be evident to everybody around you because you're going to have a love for people and you won't be judging them, even church people. Take your parking space or your seat. You won't have a heart that feels that those horrible sinners need to go to hell tomorrow. Or maybe today, that'd make it even better. That won't be your heart because you'll know that God died for you while you were still a sinner. Go to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you won't be judged. Sound familiar? Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. 
Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Here he's talking about all sorts of stuff. Forgiveness, judgment, condemnation, but even generosity. And look at what he says. If you're generous with other people, how's God going to respond to you? Generously. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Look at verses 27 through 30. I don't think a lot of us really believe that God's generous. That's why we think we have to pinch every little penny, try to make it work, trying to be good stewards. When you actually take that term good stewards and think that means you have to be cheap and count your pennies, that really means you see God as a hard man. And you better account for every little penny or else he's going to get you. You really don't know the heart of the father. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 and following. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there, sorry, what then will we have? Jesus said to him and said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a pittance. Is that what it says? We'll see how much. A hundredfold and will inter- and also will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Here again, it shows the heart of the Father. I'm paying attention. I know the sacrifices you've made. I know what you've been through. I know what I've asked you to do. I know what it means to follow me. But I'm keeping track, and one day I will demonstrate that generosity in ways that you can't even imagine. But you've got to trust me. And know my heart for you and keep doing what I've asked you to do, even though your flesh wants to pull you away. Keep reading in chapter 20, though, because then he goes right into this story that's causes a lot of us to have a bellyache. And some of you are going to have a bellyache tonight as I read it to you. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give to you. And so they went and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they'd receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. There it is again. We're going to come back to that last, first, first, last. But let's deal with this story for a second. These people were upset because they thought he wasn't fair. Did he not pay them what he said he would pay them? What did they really have an issue with? They had an issue with his generosity. 
That's what they had the issue with. That's what he said. Your problem's with my generosity. I chose to give this person that worked only one hour the same as mine as they. Yeah, but we worked harder. That's the attitude of the older son in the parable of the prodigal son, remember? All these years I've slaved for you. You've never even given me a goat. Yet this guy that wastes all your money with the prostitutes, he comes back and you give him a fatted calf and a party. And what did the father say? He said, my son, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. You're still trying to earn it instead of receiving it by faith. By the way, I'm going to ask you a question. Because first off, I'll say something that I know is true for all of us. We've all had a problem with how God does things in his world, have we not? If you say to me that I've never questioned anything God's ever done, you just lied. We all do. You know how I can prove it to you? How many of you, show of hands, had a say on whether or not you were going to be born? No, you didn't, did you? But isn't it interesting? You had no say on whether or not you are going to be born, yet you came into this world that had been running without you for thousands of years, the world that God created for his purposes, and from the moment you came into this earth, you wanted everything to be about you. You mamas know what I'm talking about. Did the, your babies, when they were born, say, hey, whenever you feel like it, I'll eat, but you know, rush? Or did they say, I want to be fed now, and I will make a noise until you do it? Or I need you to change my diaper right now, and okay, do it again. And then as they got older, they, when they didn't get their way, you threw a fit, and you probably, like all kids, learned how to become rubber and just throw your hissy fit in the mall or on the floor or wherever it was, and you... It always had to be about you. Isn't that amazing? That's in all of us, folks. Don't think for a second that that part of our flesh is gone. We always look at how Peter rebuked Jesus, and we think, I would never do that. Oh, we do it all the time. Whenever you get mad, when something happens that you don't like, or he didn't do it the way you thought he should, you question his goodness. You question his love. Why? I know what he's trying to teach me. Why does it keep taking so long? Because you haven't learned the lesson. We all have to be willing to go back and understand the heart of God. He keeps his word, and he's generous. But he's going to do some things that will make you question it. Why? The righteous shall live by faith in what he said. I don't understand why he does some of the things he does, but his word has shown me who he is and he's already proven it through his son. Why would I want to question anything? Has anybody else noticed this first will be last and last will be first thing coming up in a lot of Jesus' teachings? You notice how he keeps saying that over and over? The first are those who seek to be first and in doing so, they look out for themselves. These are the people that are jockeying for position. The first are the ones who are trying to be the most impressive, the most noticed, to get the most pats on the back or applauds. The last are the meek, who don't think of themselves too highly, but they rely on God for all they need. 
The last are the ones who in this life actually are the strongest in their faith because they so trust that God is good and he's generous and whatever they need, it will be met, that they trust him and they don't worry about whether or not people notice them or they get the accolades. They're willing because they understand that, like David said in Psalm 16, you're my portion, you're my cup, you're my shield. Go to Luke chapter 14. Look what Jesus teaches here. In Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. As I read that, I always think of embarrassing. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. By the way, does anybody remember Romans chapter 5? Sorry, Romans, not Romans 5. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who even though... He was equal with God and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took the role of a servant, even though that meant death on a cross. By the way, Jesus isn't asking you to do anything he didn't do. This hard man that's making me have to go through all this stuff for his purposes, he was willing to do the exact same thing for you and me, was he not? He humbled himself and he took a role. And he trusted the Father. He, when he walked on the earth, said, I don't even do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I make no decisions on my own. I'm following the Father. And folks, the only way that we will really move into that realm of understanding this is if we spend time letting him prove the truth of his word toward us and let it sink into our hearts. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 31 and 32, and then we're going to do something fun as we close tonight. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Doesn't that sound familiar? What does that sound familiar? That last part of that verse, does that sound like anything we might have looked at tonight? What? Remember at the end of Ask, Seek, and Knock? If you or evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? He's good. He's generous. I'm going to share with you how this message is working on me right now. As I've shared with you in the past, someone was wonderfully generous to give my wife and I master's tickets. We're going to go this weekend, Lord willing, because the tickets that we've been given are for Sunday. Has anybody checked the weather for Augusta, Georgia this weekend? I have. <laughs> and uh, they'll be okay tomorrow. Friday is 50% chance of rain. 
Saturday is 60% chance of rain, and Sunday is 90% chance of rain with thunder showers. And I am saying, oh, God, I've been waiting for a long time. And I have to be reminded, he's good. He's good. And I'm not to spend all my time between now and then with my belly checking the weather every hour, which I've been doing. <laughs> We're going to go see what he's got in mind. But I'm, I haven't applied this lesson myself. I'm just as human as you. Don't think that I stand up here and teach and that I've got it all figured out. I don't. But he's just asked me to teach it and live it as well. So this is what we're going to do in the time we have left. The Bible says that we're to ask and to seek and to knock. What are some things that the scripture says that we're to ask and seek and knock about? What are some of these good things that he's promised in his word to give us? Now, what's the most important one first? Salvation. Go to Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter, Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. First and foremost, I hope you understand that even if he didn't do anything else, we've already gotten the greatest gift we could ever get. Forgiveness of our sins, the mercy that we've received, the grace that comes with what's going to happen for eternity. If nothing else happens, we're good. A lot of Christians, unfortunately, say when bad things happen, nothing good ever happens to me. And what a slam that is on their Savior. Okay, but besides salvation, what are some things... That are good things that the Bible says God wants for you, that he wants you to ask. Peace. You said peace and joy, right? Let's do it with peace. Go to Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, look at verses 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't miss this. You anxious about something? By the way, it's not saying don't ever be anxious. Because if that was the case, you would never have anything to pray about. You understand what I'm saying? So the passage isn't saying don't ever be anxious. He's just saying don't stay there. When you're anxious and you've got something to pray about, Make your request to God with supplications. And also what? Thanksgiving. Why? Because he's a good God and he's generous and he'll do it. And you can go boldly and shamelessly and with impudence because he's someone that's not only able, he's willing. He wants you to have this peace. Oh, and by the way, it's a peace that doesn't come when you understand. It's the peace that passes understanding. Understanding still hadn't showed up. You're sitting there waiting for understanding to come. Peace passes understanding and gets there first. You don't have had the peace when you get the understanding. You get the peace before it gets there. 
Does anybody else here lack wisdom? Want some wisdom? You got some decisions you got to make? You got some things going on you got to be praying about? Anybody lack wisdom? Uh, go to James chapter 1. I'm going to show you how to meditate on the scriptures, though, by looking at James chapter 1. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. There's that generous word again. And it will be given to him. Now, before you go any further, stop. This is how you meditate on the word of God. You take a section of scripture, you take a little verse or even a portion of a verse, and you sit there and you think on it. Remember I taught you the Hebrew word means like a cow chewing its cud. You burp it up and chew on it some more, and you burp it up and chew on it some more. This is, stick with its, it will. Stick with the it will part. It will be given to him. It will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God is going to bring to your mind your remembrance, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And what? He what? He what? No, no, no. He what? He will. You're meditating on he will. We get so hurried to read through it all, and I did my Bible reading. No, meditate on it. Folks, if you stay on, it will, he will, one, it'll move from here to here. Don't just taste it. Chew on it until you swallow it. And all of a sudden, you'll have a peace. And you'll know, he's going to show me. And you'll be okay. I've shared this with you in the past. Some of you may remember, some of you may not. I was preaching on this passage at a men's conference. And at or the break, this man comes up to me. And I had been teaching how if you ask God, he will give you wisdom. You have to disbelieve. That's the rest of the verse goes on and says, don't doubt, believe it. And this guy says, I tried it. It didn't work. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you know how you said, you know, ask God for wisdom. And, and I, I, I asked God for wisdom. and He didn't give it to me. It didn't work. I said, that's because you didn't believe that he would. He said, no, no, I really did believe that he would. I asked him. I waited. It didn't happen. It doesn't work. I said, that's because you didn't believe that he would. He said, Jim, you don't know my heart. How could you know my heart? You don't know me. I really believed he would tell me. I asked him. He didn't. It doesn't work. I said, that's because you didn't believe that he would. His next words were hilarious and a little scary. He goes, I'm about to punch you in your mouth. Why do you keep saying that? I said, because if you really believed that God would show you, you would wait. You see, you believed that God would show you within your little time period and when God didn't answer in your time period, you stop believing that he would. But if you believe that he will tell you, you'll wait until he does because he's going to tell you. You understand what I'm saying? That's why the verse goes on and says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I'm going to give you one more that actually sums it all up. Go to 1 John chapter 5, our last verse for tonight. 1 John chapter 5, our last passage. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. John says, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. We read that to you again. Here's the confidence that we have towards God. That if we ask anything, remember his children, 
If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Isn't that awesome? Now, what's the key? That it be according to his will for you. Listen closely. Something could be his will for you, but not right now. Are you willing to trust that if it's his will for you, it will come? And are you willing to trust that if his answer is no, even though you have no idea how that could be good, that's the best answer because everything is his whole heart's for you? God's for you. And if he says no, even though you don't understand it, one day you're going to understand and you're going to thank him for the fact that he said no. Let me give you the greatest example as we close. Was there ever a time that Jesus prayed to the Father and the Father said no? Aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad the Father said no? At that time, though, anybody else would have probably thought, Jesus understood, but anybody else would have probably thought, why? Oh, but now we have church services to celebrate the fact that he said no. We have pageants and musicals, and we go all over the globe telling everybody, isn't it awesome that the Father said no? Folks, ask, seek, knock. He loves you, and I do too. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.